Okay, so everyone turn to John, and we left in John 1.18, and we are now in John 1.19 through 39. And uh, just for you, a couple of people that were brand new, we reviewed the Gospel of John. And what we said, the Gospel of John was, and I'm not going to spend the whole lesson, even though I'm so tempted to, um, the Gospel of John was written well after all the other synoptic Gospels. And this was a spiritual Gospel that... The, all the elders, because John at this point is 85, 90 A.D., and all the other disciples had been martyred. So he was the, one of the last eyewitnesses, eye disciples of Jesus. So they asked him to write a spiritual gospel, um, different. And so that's what he did. And so he hand-selected his uh, seven signs, and he hand-selected his seven discourses, and he has seven I am's. Jesus says, I am the bread, and I am seven. And, um, and, he, and all these events are not just their windows in to tell us to what God is all about. So last week we covered where, John, where in John 1, 1, he, he says, I am, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So that was the first of the signs. And last week we had a clue board out here because we had clues, and we saw how in the Old Testament all of these word pictures that John's going to... Um, it's like a skeleton. He's going to flesh out for us, um, really started in the Old Testament. So the portrait that John's painting is coming from the palette of the Old Testament. And uh, so the first one we talked about was the word and how the word was, um, wow, the, the word, how can I say this in a smart, so short, short. Um, the word is the, re, the reason why everything makes sense. Um, that's what the Greeks thought the word was. It was um, they saw the order in the universe. They and they all and they saw this beauty, and they said something had to make that. That was the logos. That was the and so as um, as we know that words utter thought, Jesus uttered God, and um, and so and in the prologue, which is what we say last week, which was verses one through eighteen, that prologue covers just about every major point that he's going to flesh out later you know he's going to talk about lightness he's going to talk about um evil he's going to talk about um you know all kinds of things but it was all in there so that's where we left it um the last verse that we did was uh verse 18 no one has seen god at any time the only begotten son who is in the bosom of the father he has declared him um and that uh, one of the early church fathers said that 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 bosom of the father that's that kindred and oneness of essence and one of my favorite commentators translates that no one has ever seen god except the only begotten he has led the way into the bosom of the father now i just want you to know that this is the relationship jesus wants with us and we read last week john 17 where he says in that high priestly prayer you know, oh, that you might be, I might be in you, and you might be me, and we all be in the Father, and the love that I have, you know, that it would, it would be in all of us. Um, that's the unity that he's talking about. So he's, John is planting a seed here of abiding friendship, which he will nurture and grow all throughout, until we finally actually get to 15, where he talks about, I am the vine, and you are the branches, and no man... Um, bears fruit apart from me. Um, so anyway, so that's kind of what we talked about last week. Um, as we switch from verse 18, and I'm going to read it all to you. 
Um, I just want you to know that um, in the prologue, he has shown what he intends to do. He's writing his gospel to demonstrate that Jesus is the mind, the reason, the word of God that came into the world in the form of a human person. And having set down this central thought, he begins the story of the life of Jesus. And so that's where we are right now. So make sure you have your Bibles open because I'm going to read verses 19 through 39. And this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent the priests and the Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but he confessed, I'm not the Christ. And they asked him, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? And he answered, no. So then they said to them, well, who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? And he said, I am the voice crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. As the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees and they asked him, well, then why are you baptizing if you're neither the Christ or Elijah or the prophet? And he answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one. Just seeing if this is working. Oh, good. Stands one um, who you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. And these things took place in Bethany across from Jordan, where John was baptizing. And the next day they saw Jesus coming toward him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he whom I said that after me comes one who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and when it remained on him, and I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, On whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen, and I have borne witness, and this is the Son of God. And the next day, again, John was standing with the two disciples, and he looked at Jesus and as he walked by, and he said again, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and said to them, following, and said to them, Why are you seeking? And they said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said, Come, and you will see. So they came, and they saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for for it was about the tenth hour. Okay, so in the introduction um, to this whole narrative, the story of Jesus begins with John the Baptist. John the Baptist um, was the first that was called to the witness stand to testify who Jesus was. John's story camp comes after 400 years of total silence. The intertestament period was 400 years long, and lots of things happened, but no prophets, no prophets spoke. And so he comes barreling out, and he looks just like Elijah, and people start flocking to him. And so, you know, I'm just going to give you some little facts about him. Um, he was supposed to go in the spirit and the power of Elijah to make the people prepared for the Lord. Both of his parents were of the tribe of Aaron. His father was a priest in the temple. In Luke 1, 11 through 17, you know that beautiful story about how the angel and how John doesn't really believe the angel and all that. But refresh your mind and read that, but I don't have time to do it. He was raised a Nazarite. He drank no wine. 
Um, and that's number 6-3. In Luke 3, 1-21, it describes him as a wild man with long hair and a leather belt eating locusts and honey. In John 10:40, it's reported that he never did a miracle. He had a crisis of faith as reported in Matthew 11, 2 through 18. But in verse 11, Jesus said no one was born greater than John the Baptist. No one. So you think that this guy would be like head and shoulders above everything and, you know, be ready to say, oh, yeah, that would be me. Oh, no. John was the antithesis. John was more interested in telling you who he was not than who he was. Um, what a pattern for us to follow. In 123, John 123, he said he's just a voice. That's how substantial he is. I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness. In 127, he said he's not worthy. In chapter 329, which I'm going to read to you later, he says, I'm not the groom, I'm not the bride, but I'm a friend of the groom. <laughs> in chapter 3, verse 30, he says, um, and these are famous words, that Jesus, he must become greater and I must become less. Um, so in a world when everyone is trying to make themselves seem better than they really are, this man was truly humble. He spent his whole life attracting thousands and then pointing them to Jesus. He, in fact, was the Ed McMahon of the New Testament. And he would say, here's Jesus. Okay? Now, so, now they didn't have these back in the day. But if they did, this would have been Jesus. I mean, John would have had one of these. So hang on a second because this is my one prop. You get a prop night okay so he he was he was all about pointing to Jesus it wasn't about him it was about Jesus okay so he was he was all about pointing okay let's unpack this passage and it verse 19 and this is the testimony of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him who you are he confessed and he did not deny but he confessed I'm not I'm not the one I'm not the Christ and they asked him well what then are you Elijah? He said, I'm not. Are you the prophet? He said, no. So then he said, well, who are you? We need to, we need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? Okay, let's back up to verse 19. It says, now this is the testimony of John. Now let me just say that John is writing his gospel. It's 85. The last New Testament book was written 10 years before this. He is about, he is all about bearing witness because back in those, they don't have lie detector tests, they don't have tapes, they don't have videos. So what he wants to do is accurately portray who Jesus was. Because by this time, there was a whole lot of extra biblical literature going on that was false. So he was all about saying, this is what I saw, this is what happened, and this is true. Okay. So the theme of witness pervades this whole gospel. Um, you will find that... God is using manifold witnesses, and John is going to tell us about each one. Um, he's, it's the witness to the Father. It's the witness of the Son. It's the witness of the Spirit. It's the witness of the works of Christ. You know, the, they bear witness. The, the Scriptures bear witness. I can give you all the passages, but you're just going to have to work with me on that. The witness of the disciples, including the disciple that Jesus loved. The purpose of this manifold witness, as of John's witness, it's that is what we said was the theme what, that everyone would believe. And in believing, they would have life in his name. 
okay so the purpose um so the, and we said last week that's that's in john um 20 verse 30 and 31 that's the uh, john tells you i've written these things um so that everyone may believe in jesus um okay so let us mention again that believe is that greek word pisteo and um it's more than just intellectual assent okay because we know that even the demons believe okay and they tremble it's more it's it, and okay so if i had oh here's here's a chair okay so if i said to you i believe this chair could support me okay i could say this chair could support me but i don't believe according to john that the chair can support me until i'm resting in the chair so it's about transforming and changing what i'm doing not just saying oh i know for sure that can support me okay so i want you to get that because there's a whole lot of people out there that believe that jesus is god's son and they believe all kinds of things but they've never rested relied it hasn't transformed their life and so john would say hmm and james would say we know that faith without the works is dead so anyway I'm just saying, let's think about that, okay? And let's let God, you know, prick our own heart about that. Because we say, it was funny because I'm in this, in my headspace, I'm trying to figure out different ways. And our Sunday school class, Matt Chandler said, <laughs> on, on the video, this just Sunday, he said, well, um, he said, the difference between knowing and believing is when you're transformed by the knowledge. His illustration was the speed limit. I can know the speed limit is 25. But it's not until I'm going 25 and not speeding that I really believe it, okay? So I totally get this. Now, there is, I'm, I, I'm, I'm constantly perplexed about how we have the most beautiful, amazing gospel and how they're closing churches, ladies. Uh, if, you go to, if you go to Europe, you'll go to a church and there'll be like 15 people there in these huge stained glass beautiful acoustics all kinds of statues and there's 15 people and some of them like i was in we were in scotland and uh, in edinburgh and one of the one of the most famous churches is now like a community center like that's where they you know where you buy tickets for shows and stuff and you're uh, and i'm like why is that why is that captain ron well here's dean in sierra wrote a book last year in 2019 and it was called the unsaved christian and it and his the subtitle was reaching cultural christianity with the gospel so he tells this story and he graduates from seminary and he's moving his stuff out and the guy next door is graduating from seminary moving his stuff and they're talking and our guy dean is going to the bible belt and the guy next door he's going to california well dean says I am so sad for you because, <laughs> you know, they're crazy out there, you know. And he says, and the guy surprised him and said, you know what, I'm really sad for you. And he said, why? He said, because in California, you are either, either a Christian or you're not. And it's completely apparent. He said, but, and I'm going to quote him, in the Bible Belt, many people think they're Christians, but they have no concept of the severity of sin the necessity of repentance, the message of grace, or the overall message of the gospel. They think they're fine with God and God is fine with them because they aren't an atheist and they've been to church. 
at some point in time. Um, Dean distinguishes the true belief in Christ, the true transformation, with what he defines as cultural Christianity. Now, I didn't read his whole book because there's only two chapters for free online. <laughs> so, and they wouldn't let you copy and paste that. Imagine that. I had to type this out. <laughs> but anyway, I'm going to read this book at some point after John. Um, because I love what he has to say, but let me read some more. It says, um, this cultural Christianity is practiced by more Americans than any f- other faith or religion. Its participants can be found in Catholic and Protestant churches in the South and the Midwest. It's on high school football fields, it's in patriotic celebrations, and it's around family dinner tables. It looks and sounds very Christian on the surface, but it's really merely Christian by culture, not by conviction. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not part of the equation. Cultural Christianity admires Jesus, but doesn't really think he's needed except to take the wheel, if you know that song, um, in a moment of crisis. Um, Amazing Grace is a song they can all sing from memory, but why that grace is amazing cannot be explained. And let me tell you, I think he really hit the nail on the head. And so the, the, the guy that was going to California said, good luck in that Bible belt. <laughs> because I, you have to get them lost and then save them. <laughs> I just got to get them saved. <laughs> he didn't really say that. I made that up. Okay. So, <laughs> anyway, so I want you to know that John the Baptist was the first one to say, I stand and give witness and my witness is true, I'm going to testify to the truth about Jesus Christ. So that why? So that we can believe, so we can have this confidence, so that we can be sitting in the chair, resting in the chair, and knowing that he has done it for us, and that will transform us. And if it doesn't transform us, then somehow we've missed it, okay? Um, I, I have way too many people are thinking, you know, am I saved or am I saved? You know, the fruits of the spirit will start happening. I mean, it, this is this, he wants us to grow. Now, are we perfect? Oh my gosh, no. We are now in the process if you're a true believer of sanctification in which he is moving and working us to make us look more and more like Jesus. And Paul says, "I am confident of this very thing that he who began a good work will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus." That's Philippians 1:6, I think. So, I'm just saying that um I think that's so relevant that we need to think about that. And, and also, I think we need to think about it with our family members. I, I think as moms, we want so badly our kids to be saved. So if they say the, the four spiritual laws or whatever it is, the three circles, or, and we say, oh, they're good. Mm-hmm. But it, is their life changed? And, you know, this is a part where they have to figure out their own faith and we have to let them. Um, so, you know, your kids that are in college, this is a time when they really have to figure it out. And it has to be their faith, not your faith. Um, so anyway, I, and I'm just saying that a lot of kids will say all the things that you want to hear. But is their life change? And, I, you know, I, and I'm not saying yes or no. I'm just saying it's a thing that we need. We just assume a lot. And, um, and, I, and I think we should really check. Um, you know, and, and see, am I, am, you know, where am I in all that? Um, so here's John. So John is, um, first of all, he says, he says, um, 
they look at him and they say, are you the Christ? He says, no, I'm not the Christ. <laughs> I'm not the Christ. Um, his job was to point to the Messiah. It's important that John, the gospel writer, wants to make it clear to his readers. And in fact, the Greek words that he uses in this when he says, I am not the Christ. It's almost like he's screaming. I'm not him. Okay. That's what it in Greek. <laughs> That's what it says. So it wasn't everybody was like, oh, you know, he. and I have to tell you, he had to say this because we know that in Acts, we have Apollo, we have Priscilla, we have Aquila. We have all these people that knew the baptism of John and didn't know. And it said, actually, one of my uh, guys said in even in the year 250, there were still John, some of John's disciples who preached about him as if he was the Messiah. So it was a big, because let me tell you, if you were looking for an Old Testament Jewish prophet, he totally fit the bill. He was that guy. And, uh, and they longed for that guy. They wanted that guy. Um, so then he says, are you Elijah? Um, okay, so why is that? There's a lot of verses here, and I'm going to give you them, and you can look them up later, because we're just not going to have time enough to say it. But uh, Matthew eleven thirteen through 14, for all the prophets in the law prophesied until John, that as if he was Elijah who is to come. Mark 9, 11 through 13 also talks about how Jesus says Elijah is going to come. And F.F. Um, F. Bruce writes, if John was not the Messiah, he might be, you know, and, and if he's not Elijah, well, maybe he's somebody else, okay? Um, so... Let me just say Malachi 4 5 said, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. Um, and let me just say he looked a lot like Elijah. Okay. So he was clothed in camel's hair and a leather girded, uh, a leather girdle was around his waist, according to Mark 1 6. Um, and he reminded people of Elijah, who in 2 Kings 1 8 wore a garment of hair cloth with a girdle of leather around his loins. They kind of looked a lot alike. Um, so then he says, Are you the prophet? Now, this is a reference to Deuteronomy 18 15 through 18, where Jesus, where the Old Testament um, to Moses is saying, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them what I command him. So there's this prophet. So they're saying, are you the prophet? Um, and so he says, no, no, no. I am the voice. And I love that because he's like, I'm not even a person. I'm just speaking. I'm. And what is the voice saying? It's saying, prepare ye the way of the Lord. If we had more time, I would sing you that song from Godspell because it's so good right here. But um, I'm not going to. I'm going to let that go. Um, he's qu- quoting from Isaiah 40, 30. Um, and basically, in this time when an emperor or a king would visit, they would spend years getting the roads ready, getting the banners out. They were they wanted to prepare. So this was John's job was to clean up everyone's acts. So, you know, get them baptized so that they were ready to hear when the Messiah came. Um, John's real function was not to teach ethics, but to appoint men to Jesus. <laughs> Make straight the way of the Lord. Be ready. Um, okay, so one thing we can say about John, and this is part of what I love about John the Baptist, is that he he didn't like have to work at being humble. Okay, 
he's really had a great understanding of who Jesus was. And when we get a really good understanding to Jesus, we don't have to work at it. We are humble. Because when he is so big, we naturally are eclipsed. We just can't help it. When we learn and know him well, we magnify him. Like Mary, I magnify the Lord. Um, David said that I magnify the Lord. But he gets bigger and then naturally, we don't have to put on a hair shirt. We get smaller. Because we see what we are like in comparison to him. And then we say, like David, I am but dust. But dust. So let me just tell you. So John chapter 3, you can turn there if you want. Um, 25 through 31. They have this little discussion. And uh, and they're, his disciples are kind of a little annoyed that, you know, a lot of people are moving, like, like the Apostle John, um, are going over to Jesus. Okay, so... In verse 26, it says, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. And John answered, A person cannot receive even one thing unless it's been given to him from heaven. Let me just tell you, if, if we could just hold on to that, that'd be great. You know, every good thing, every good gift, James tells us, comes down from the Father of lights. And so if you think, say, I'm a good teacher, that's great. But I have to tell you that that is a gift from him. And it's like me being curly hair. I have nothing really to do with it. Now, he wants us to use our gifts and work with Don't get me wrong. But the gift part is all him. And that's why he's supposed to get all the glory. Because he does all the heavy lifting, okay? So John, like, totally knew that. He said, listen, nothing happens unless it's coming, unless it's been given from heaven. And verse 28, you yourself bear me witness, because, again, we like that word witness, that I said, I'm not the Christ, I, <clears throat> but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bride at the bridegroom's voice therefore this joy of mine is now complete he must increase and i must dis- de- decrease he who comes from above is above all he who's of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way he who comes from heaven is above all john knew john really knew he knew really a lot more than even the 12 disciples. I'm just saying, they were the slow learners. They were the little bluebirds in the glass, okay? so But John was happy. John was happy to see Jesus come. He was happy that his disciples were going over. He's like, oh, yeah, there, there he is. Go, point, 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 okay? He's him, okay? So... Um, and so the, let's go back to verse 26 in chapter 1. And John answers them, I baptize with water, but among you who stands one who you do not know, um, he, even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. So first of all, he says, I baptize with water. So I have to tell you that Jews don't baptize. <laughs> Jews. And this was a new thing. The only the rite of baptism was in Jewish records was only for Gentiles who wanted to become Jewish. So they had to get cleaned up. 
So they came, so that it was a formal rite. In fact, let me read you my quote. It's not unlikely that John's baptism followed the same pattern of proselyte baptism, which required a renunciation of all evil, complete immersion in water, and then reclothing as a member of the Holy Communion of Law Keepers. Okay? So John was taking, that's what they were using, but he was saying, y'all Jews, y'all dirty. <laughs> and you all need to repent and you all need to be baptized. Now, you have to know that Jews hated Gentiles. Like, you know, a famous prayer was like, God, thank you for not making me a woman or a Gentile. That was a famous prayer. I mean, they all said that, okay? So so when John comes around saying, oh, you want to be part of my tree? You get in the water and be like, and like, like the Gentiles had to do. Oh, that was, but he was such a powerful speaker. Thousands of people came to hear him. I mean, he was in the middle of nowhere. They had to come. And that's why the Pharisees, they're sending their, their people. They sent this little delegation because it's a long way. And, and they're out in the middle of the desert, you know. So, uh, so anyway, so he baptizes um, men. And I just think that's pretty amazing. Um, so, but he says to them, there's one that stands among you that I, he's preferred. Why? Because he was even before me. Again, he's preaching about how Jesus is eternal, how he's the son of God, how he's co-equal with God, how he is God. In every little piece of his gospel, he says that again and again, in case there's some doubters in there. Um, and also, too, Gnosticism was a big deal back in this. And, and I told you about the Hellenism and how they have all this dual. And in their minds, that any, everything spiritual was good and anything fleshly was, was evil. So John went out of his way in his gospel, like when he said the word became flesh, oh, that totally disgusted them. Because how could anything eternal become flesh? Because flesh is always bad, okay? So he went out of his way to point out all the times that Jesus was hungry, tired, frustrated, angry, because he wanted him to see that he's a real man, and he was truly 100% man, and he's 100% God. So, because that was going to blow the Gnostics out of the water, because that was a huge heresy that really came and is, is right now, when he's writing this, is a huge part, is, is a huge problem. Okay, so let me tell you about the strap. So, there is, in this culture, Jesus was not the only one to have disciples. There was lots and lots of rabbis that had disciples, and they all kind of hung around Galilee, because that was kind of the place to go. And so if you were a person that was shown like all Jewish boys and girls went to school, they all learned the, the law. And when they got to be a little older, if they showed promise, they got to go like to more school. Okay. And after they finished that school, like in the local synagogue, if they really showed promise, they would ask somebody, a great teacher, if they could be their disciple. And this was very common. Okay, And it was so common that they had a rule because some people would take advantage of these little disciples because they were like they're sort of their slaves. And so the rule was that you could ask anything of your disciple except you could not ask him to take your sandals off because that is just too low for a disciple. And we have slaves for that. Okay, So does that give you new meaning to what Jesus did in chapter 13? Oh, yeah. He, um, anyway, it's kind of cool. So, verse 28. These things took place in Bethany across Jordan, 
where John was baptizing. If you want to look at your map, it says where it is, where they think it is. They're not exactly sure, but there is, if you look down, it's on the right-hand side of the River Jordan, and it says, that, and that's where they think he was. All right, I'm going to show you where it is on my map, right under Decapolis. That's where they think he was. And there's some good homeworks coming up where you can trace things around, because it's really good to get a geographical picture of what this is a very small place actually <laughs> um okay so the next day jesus he saw jesus coming towards him and he said behold the lamb of god who takes away the sin of the world this is the one i talked about after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me i myself did not know him but for this purpose i came baptizing with water that he might be, re be revealed to israel okay so the next day so john talked about that he saw him he saw the spirit descend probably that happened prior to him this day this day jesus left after he was baptized probably went to the 40 days and the 40 nights of fasting in the desert and now jesus is probably coming back to john and so this is john seeing him again he says behold the lamb of god who takes away the sins of the world now this is one of the most epic sentences so we're going to have to take a little bit of time and talk about every every little part of it because it's just so good first of all i have to tell you that um one of my commentators ff bruce he wants you to know that the lamb of god is so familiar with christians but it was not familiar it was not something people said about people back in the day it was very unusual um, Zondervan says that the lamb was a Jewish symbol for innocence and gentleness. The lamb was the principal sacrifice um, among the Jews. It was offered every morning and every evening according to the Mosaic law. At Passover alone, there was 256,000 lambs slain in Jerusalem at this time. So there's like they totally understood what the lambs are, but they never heard about like a guy. How could he be the lamb? Now, there's two Old Testament beautiful pictures that I'm not, I don't have time to read, but I know you know the story. Genesis 22 is the story I referred to in my joke <laughs> where Abraham is called to sacrifice his only begotten son, only son, um, Isaac. And, and so as a demonstration of faith, he's going to put uh, Isaac to death and then at the crucial moment God stops him but before he stops him Isaac asks this very in intriguing question he says dad he didn't say that but that's implied where I see the altar I see but where's the lamb and Moses and uh, Abraham said God will provide the lamb so the all of Old Testament Warren Wearsby says can be summed up in where is the lamb and all the new testament be summed up in behold the lamb mm -hmm. and then all of glory is going to be summed up with worthy is the lamb oh, isn't that good so so i just love that um the old test the second old testament story is found in exodus 12 1 through 28 and it's the story of the passover and you guys know this story the israelites were stuck in slavery and God heard their cries and sent Moses. And uh, so Moses and Pharaoh had conversations. 
resulting in many plagues <laughs> as God's trying to convince him to let my people go. And the last plague was the angel of death. And you know the story. He said, take a lamb and take kill the lamb for the household and put his blood using hyssop, which by the way is mentioned at the cross, and put the lamb's blood over the lentil so that the angel of death will pass over. So you just are here. It's just so beautiful that G, that John is painting this beautiful portrait of Jesus, but he really is using these Old Testament stories to give it meaning and depth. First um, Peter 1, 18 and 19, uh, Peter echoes the same theme. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In 1 Corinthians 5, 7, uh, Paul writes, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So that is what that is kind of the picture that they're talking about and I just have to tell you that at the dawn of Jesus's ministry he's greeted with words that are declaring his destiny his sacrificial agony and death on the cross for the sin of mankind the shadow of the cross is cast over the entire ministry of Jesus he knew it John knew it not too many other people figured it out um, but he not that he didn't say it a lot um, so John didn't present Jesus as a great moral example, a great teacher of holiness and love. He proclaimed Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. Um, so in this one sentence, John the Baptist summarized the greatest work of Jesus to deal with the sin problem afflicting the human race. Every word of his sentence is important. First of all, he says, behold, and that, my friends, is the finger. He looks and he's telling everyone, behold. That's him. Behold. Here's the thought for you. What are you pointing at these days? That's conviction on me. Okay. So, behold the Lamb of God. Um, Okay, the Lamb of God. John used the image of the sacrificial lamb represented many times in the Old Testament. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment of every time this image is displayed. He is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. He is the animal slain in the garden of Eden to cover the nakedness of the first sinners. He is the lamb of God that God himself would provide for Abraham as a substitute for Isaac. He is the Passover lamb for Israel. He is the lamb for the guilt offerings of all the Levitical sacrifices. He is Isaiah's lamb to the slaughter ready to be shorn. Each of these lambs fulfilled their role in their death this was an announcement that jesus would die if anybody was listening john got it (laughs) and he was going to die for a very specific reason as a sacrifice for the sin of the entire world of the whole world um uh okay last week we talked about how you know jesus was God, you know, Jesus was God in the flesh, right? 
and we talked about how wonderful that concept was of that Jesus came down, you know, and that he didn't say, you know, that Philippians 2, you know, the kenosis passages where he left all of glory to come down. He thought it not robbery. And that's such a beautiful story, but that is nothing if he didn't die. So we have to move quickly from he is the word to now he's behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Um, let me tell you, one of my favorite homeworks is the backside of your homework, and that is reading through that Isaiah passage and then re- looking up every one of the New Testament fulfillments. It's good. Um, uh, I just felt like, you know, we just don't realize, and if you have any Jewish friends that are, you know, just tell them, just read Isaiah 53 and let's just chat. Let's just chat because they don't, they discount that whole passage because they didn't really, they were not looking and they were not looking in Jesus' day either for a sacrifice for sin. They were looking for a political Messiah. And so that blinded them. We saw, we know there's the coming of two kings. Um, we know that the first one came um, and, and was, you know, seated on the colt and died for our sins. And the second one's going to come on the white horse. They were looking for the white horse. That's honestly what they were looking for. So um, Isaiah, let me just read two verses, but you should read the whole chapter. Really starting 52. Um, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that was led to the slaughter, like a sheep that was before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. There is something so beautiful in that, ladies, that, you know, in your quiet times, you just need to sit and just think about that. That's, and it takes my breath away when it talks about how it was the will of the Father to crush him. Because that's what it took for our redemption. And that was what he was willing to do. And that was what he was willing to do before day one. Before day one. Behold the Lamb. So the servant Messiah was not popular at this time. The Jewish people felt like their main problem (laughs) was the Romans. So they were looking for a political Messiah to come and release them and free them like Moses did out of Egypt, them out of this, the, the Romans. Jesus came to save them from what was really their worst problem, and that's their sin. They didn't think it. And let me just tell you, that is a common thought today. Boy, nobody likes to talk about sin these days. I have family members that say, I don't believe in sin. I'm like, let me just pray over you. <laughs> um, sin is sin. Sin, what is sin? Sin is, he said, I am, behold, the Lamb of God. It takes away the sin. The sin. What is sin? Sin is the Greek word hamartia. The definition, the theological definition of sin is anything that is contrary from the holiness or the righteousness of God. So sin, it's not bad. We always think, oh, sin's bad. No, sin is everything that's not God. It is, everything takes its definition if you think about it long enough because God is self-existent. He's the only one that's self-existent. But anyway, um, so he, so sin is, um, the Greek word hamartia means missing the mark. Okay, missing the mark. So when you're shooting and you miss the mark, it doesn't really matter how far you miss the mark. 
you missed the mark. And that's why Romans is very clear. There's none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Let me tell you, honey, we are all sinners. And if you don't think so, just go drive in traffic, okay? I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure it's going to come out, okay? I'm just saying, I thought that I was, I told this in my Sunday school class and they died. I said, I really thought I was getting better about my anger. And then I realized all my kids left home. <laughs> Dang. I'm probably just the same. But I'm just saying, you know, it's still in us. That's part of our flesh that we, we're going to have until he takes us and gives us our new body. And that's sin. We were born with sin. Anybody that talks about that they don't believe in sin, I'm like, have you ever been with preschoolers? <laughs> I, I'm like, <laughs> just, just hang around a two-year-old for a little while. I don't like that. I want this. <laughs> And we're all two years inside, two year olds inside. We just cover it a little better. Um, so let me just say, um, the Lamb of God foreshadows. This is John MacArthur. Jesus is uh, his ultimate sacrifice on the cross for the sins of the world. With this brief statement, the prophet John made it clear that the Messiah had come to deal with sin. The Old Testament is filled with the reality and the problem of sin. It's at the heart of every person. Jeremiah seventeen nine says. Their heart is deceitful among all and desperately wicked. Who can know it? All men are sinful, incapable of changing. Um, Paul says this so eloquently in Romans 7. Have you ever read that, Paul? Paul's saying, like, the things I want to do, I do. The things I really don't want to do, I find myself doing. Who's going to free me from this wretched body of death? Oh, thanks be to Jesus Christ. I'm just saying we have, sin is real. And that's and we have to acknowledge that so that we can give him the rightful place and glorifying him as our savior who conquered sin and death on our behalf. Um, and this is not common these days. We don't talk about it. We don't talk about that. Anyway, I just have to tell you that Jesus' sacrifice is sufficient for all people without distinction. First John two two says he is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. Now you might say, oh, universal, does that mean everyone's saved? No. Um, it, he, he has saved, he is big enough, his, his sacrifice was broad enough to encompass the whole world, but it is efficacious, clever word, uh, it, is, it is effective for only those who believe. Let's remember John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes. Okay, so that's the whosoever part. So, um, okay, I'm skipping that. Okay, so let's all turn to verse 30. We're moving along. I have 20 minutes. Okay, verse 30. And this, and he, it is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, On whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and bore witness that this is the son of God. So he was telling you before the baptism of water and it was almost the way he was saying it was like, and the baptism, but there was something bigger coming. And now he finally tells us that he, little John 
is only baptizing with water. But this great one that's coming, who he can't even untie his sandal, is coming and he's going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Um, okay, so I've seen and testified that this is the Son of God. This is the solemn testimony of John the Baptist that Jesus was the Son of God. He is the Son of God in the sense um, that we already read in 118. Remember he said um, in 118... Wait a minute. Uh, no one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him or explained Him. Um, so the witnesses give testimony. Now let me let's talk about this because you know John is writing about so that we have witnesses, okay? Um, and we are supposed to witness, okay? And when I was like in my twenties, there's like I had. We had evangelism explosion, and, and there's a lot of training about being a witness. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with doing the Romans Road or the five, four spiritual laws or whatever. There's nothing wrong with that. However, I'm just saying a witness, by definition in our court system, is just somebody who stands up and tells you what they've seen. Okay, that's what a real witness is. This is what John is doing. He's standing up, John the Baptist and John the Gospel, and John the uh, Evangelist is standing up and saying, this is what I saw with my eyes and my hands handled. That's later on in First John. <laughs> but, but he's giving, uh, and sometimes we get into these theological arguments and we really just need to be a witness. And a witness is a person that says, um, this is what Jesus did for me. This is how I was changed. I think he's real. And, uh, and you know, sometimes we make it too complicated. Um, I'm just saying that we are to be his witnesses. He's called us to be his witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and to the uttermost parts of the world. But it doesn't, and I, and I love the three circles. I love all that. Don't get me wrong. But it's really about us because they can't, argue, you know, we, you can argue about creationism. You can argue about abortion. You can argue about a million things. But they can't argue if you say, Jesus Christ changed my life and I am a different person. And I love you with the love that he's given me. And so I will wash your carpets or I will help you take your car to the place or I will do whatever it is needs to do that's his witness okay um so I just was just that's just a freebie okay um okay so we talked about the baptism okay I just have to tell you that there's a prophecy in Ezekiel in, in Ezekiel chapter 36 25 through 27 um and this is Ezekiel's prophecy of restoration and God promises not only to purify his people with clean water but also to impart with on them a new spirit his own spirit um I want to say in Ezekiel's prophecy God promises um not just to part with the new spirit but also his own spirit if the cleansing with water was associated with John's ministry, the bestowal of the Spirit was reserved for one that was greater than John. Let me tell you, this is a big deal. Because the whole Old Testament, the Spirit came and left. And the Spirit would come and help the temple people like make beautiful curtains. Okay, It's really in there, and you have to read it. Okay, The Spirit would come on Saul and help him to be a good king. And then when Saul blew it, the Spirit left, and he went a little nuts. Okay, David prays after he sins with Bathsheba, Oh, don't take your spirit from me, because he knew that was a real possibility. 
But we get the spirit, and when Jesus baptized him, we have it forever, and he lives inside us, and it's a big deal. So when he says that he comes and he baptizes us with his spirit, that is what we are when we believe we are baptized into the spirit, and the spirit takes residence within us. And um, that's, we're going to talk more about that as John fleshes that out. So most commentators, okay, so let's go to the next day. The next day in verse 35, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus and he walked by and he says, once again, wait a minute, get my finger up. <laughs> Behold, <laughs> the Lamb of God, which takes away. Oh, no, he didn't say that this time. He said, Behold, the Lamb of God. And two of the disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following, and he said to them, What are you seeking? And they say, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? And he said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw that where he was staying, and they stayed with him at that day, for it was about the tenth hour. Now, most commentators, almost every commentator that I've ever read, everyone agrees that one of these two disciples was John, was John. John the Apostle, um, because of the details and of a lot of other reasons. But we know for sure, because Andrew is mentioned later, that it's Andrew. And both of these guys have brothers that Jesus, that they wind up telling about Jesus. And that's the rest of chapter 1, which you gotta, you have to read on your own time. So let me just say that as the end of this passage, that John the Baptist's followers would follow Jesus was the natural conclusion to John's ministry. He was okay with that because he just wanted them to know. It wasn't him. It was Jesus, and everything should point to Jesus. Um, So in conclusion, in looking at Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, we have to see that the world, as we mentioned before, doesn't see sin as a problem anymore. So because they don't see sin as a problem, then they don't really see this, the Savior as the solution. Um, the thi- this thinking has invaded, invaded our world and, and Christianity. Um, but it's also in our own thinking, okay? So how many times do you have a huge problem and you, you know, you're, and you think this problem is all circumstance generated, okay? So I'll tell you my story. So like, 15 years ago, my husband came home and said, we're going to have to move to Connecticut. I said, (laughs) I said, uh, I'm sure you can have an apartment there. (laughs) I was like, like my mother is, and my father are next door. They're elderly. We're taking care of them. Like, I don't think so. And he's like, yeah, because all the engineers at Pratt & Whitney at this time, they were all, they were moving everyone up. To, and so I had to deal with that. And so I, I thought that that, you know, so I spent a lot of my brain power at that time figuring out, I got to figure out a way around this because that is really cold in Connecticut. We don't know a soul in Connecticut. Who wants to go to Connecticut? Not me. So anyway, so that was my, that was my, that was my problem. And, and I wanted to tell you that I spent a lot of time trying to figure it out. And, and he spent a year really not sleeping because, I mean, it would like everyone was going. There was thousands of engineers that went. And there was only a few engineers that stayed if they were in the rocket group. But they didn't want the jet guys in the rocket group. But a lot of the jet guys tried to get in the rocket group because that was a group that was staying. They became very popular. Well, anyway, long story short, I had to deal with that. And I realized that, you know, the problem was really not that I had to move. 
The problem really was a sin problem. It was my lack of trust. I'm, I'm pretty sure God didn't, God is, God is a God in, in Connecticut. Uh, my ingratitude, okay. My ungratefulness. And I really did have a very bad attitude. <laughs> and my own blindness to the, whatever God was going to call me to do, it was going to be the right thing. And, you know, where's my faith, you know? Anyway, so he, like, took me over the barrel. Now, the good news was that a year later, my husband comes in and he plays the song Elton John's Rocket Man because he became a rocket man. <laughs> and we did not have to move. Hallelujah. <laughs> but I'm just saying we always think that whatever the problem is, we think it's the problem. And so we spend all the, instead of sometimes it's really our lack of faith. How many times do we worry? You know worry is a sin, right? Yes. So so how many times do we worry? And, and that's just like, that's like a slam dunk. We know that's a sin. That's something we need to confess. And the reason why we worry is because we have the lack of faith that we don't believe that God can carry us through. And God will carry us through even the hardest of situations. Um, you know, loss of a spouse, loss of a child. I, I just can't even believe it. Um, Pray for Hannah. Today's the day Hannah. Elizabeth was born four years ago, and she lost that baby, you know. Uh, so, I mean, but God, and she will tell you, was there then and is there now for her. Um, so, in counseling, because I'm a counselor, um, people always come with a presenting problem. Usually they bring the presenting problem. <laughs> fix this kid okay that's what they say to me in elementary <laughs> he is it or so and so's the problem you need to move my darling little dearest away from that guy because he's the problem okay but whatever the presenting problem is in counseling it's never the real problem so we spend a lot of time in counseling listening and trying to figure out what is the underlying problem of which this presenting problem is so obvious to them and that takes a lot. I'm just telling you, John has identified that the, the real problem with humanity is our sin. It's our selfishness. It's, it's, it's our willfulness that we would choose our way rather than his way. And so um, unless you see that sin is the problem, you won't trip to that the solution is the land. And... Finding that the solution is the lamb is a beautiful, wonderful, restful thing. Because it's not about me. It's not about impressing people. It's not about... It's about recognizing what he's done for me and how cherished I am. Because he paid this ultimate sacrifice. And we need to get in that moment a little bit, you know. And so when you're in... The next time you're in traffic, I want you to think about that, okay? Um... So this, uh, okay, so the process of sanctification in the Christian life is um, that we identify sin more and more. We sin less, actually, hopefully, as we grow up in Christ. <laughs> but we see it so much more. And, um, and you hate it more because you realize what it, the destructive power of it. Um, you know, when we're baby Christians, we're like, oh, I didn't mean it. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, the New Testament speaks so beautifully about this sacrifice. And so these are some passages. I want you to write them down because I want you to look in your own quiet times and just spend time 
thinking and thanking and praising and worshiping for this Lamb of God who took away the sins of the world. Uh, Hebrews 9, 22 through 26 says, Indeed, hold on a second. I'll give you you a piece of paper. There you go. Um, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into the holy place made by human hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer for himself repeatedly as the high priest has priest had to enter into the holy places every year with blood not his own for then 